0: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit MEUSA.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who's inspired me with her perseverance, her pluck, and the business that she's built or the life that she's living. Today, I have an extraordinary woman who lives in Wichita, Kansas, and is a winemaker. Two things that seem to me to be an unusual combination. Welcome, Jenny McDonald.
3: Thank you, Dana.
2: I'm so happy to have you here. First of all, when I saw, you know, woman winemaker, Wichita, I'm like the three W's (laughs) that are not the World Wide Web that don't necessarily all add up and uh, you know as I got to know you a little better from um, like a little research and a little talking to you I, I realized what our conversation was really going to be about was not necessarily just those three W's but it is racism, women and wine because you're African American and um, that is one of the reasons that you're in the business. Correct. So it's relevant, you know. Often, like the notion of calling out <laughs> color, not the first thing I would want to do, but in your case, it's a, a it's a passion point for you to represent for others.
3: Absolutely.
2: So I'd love to go way back to your childhood. Um, I'd love for you to tell everyone about your parents and your family and what it was like growing up in um, rural Nebraska
3: yes so I had the privilege of growing up in Columbus Nebraska it's about a town of 20,000 people what's really unique is my parents could not have their own biological children so they adopted four of us all individually and all from different families my older brother's black. I'm black as well. My sister is biracial, very light-skinned, and my younger brother's black. So they did this in the 80s before adoption in biracial families was something that was more of the norm. And uh, we definitely stood out in our community, but for a good for good reasons.
2: <laughs> in that community, a tiny community, um, in a... You know, not the most populous state. Right? One would imagine that the community would be a little taken aback or perhaps not embracing, but that wasn't your experience at all.
3: No, it wasn't. It was actually the opposite. So what I found was people really took the opportunity to get to know me. I always felt welcome and safe in my community, which was so important because when I moved off to college is really the first time I experienced racism.
2: And why do you think that was? Like, what was the difference between the small town and where did you go to college? So I went to University of Nebraska Omaha my freshman year.
3: And so that's the largest city in Nebraska. And I think people were taken aback by, oh, Jennifer's not quite like the stereotypical black person. And so that threw a lot of people off.
2: Wow. What were you supposed to be like as a stereotypical black person?
3: So I speak very... I speak very well, you know, good English. (laughs) (laughs) I don't (laughs) use a lot of slang, so I was always told I I talked like a white girl. Um, You know, I try and be, you know, poised, sophisticated. You know, people thought I was too uppity, Um, so I just didn't fit the norm of what they thought a black woman should be.
2: And so, how did that make you feel? Like, was that hard?
3: It was. I felt a little bit out of place, but as I've become Uh, more mature. I just own who I am and how I was brought up.
2: And your parents were enormously welcoming to the entire community, right? Do do you feel like they're the ones who set you on the path and also set all of their neighbors into um, sort of a sense of inclusion and getting to know you? Absolutely. So what was neat is
3: any individual who was considering adoption, especially of Um, in a biracial circumstance they would go to my parents and ask questions you know I had to travel 90 miles to get my hair done (laughs) you know every two to three months you know and so my mom picked up you know how to work with black hair but that was something she had to learn and then she would teach others how to do black hair
2: that's Awesome. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you were a track star, right? I
3: was. So track was my passion growing up. And I look at that and, you know, the hard work, the effort, the drive for excellence. And i it really correlates to my life now as an entrepreneur. But just having that drive, and, and I did well. You know, it was fun running track because I excelled at it.
2: Um, Is that like... Because I don't do anything athletic, so to <laughs> excel at track, does one have to be like just train hard, or is there some gift you start with?
3: I think there's really a natural ability and a gift. So from the time I was a kindergarten, or um, you know, I was one of the fastest kids in my class um, in my town. Either three years above me or three years below me, you know,
2: I was never beat in I a row, that. <laughs> wow. What did that do to your <laughs> ego? Like, to never be beat? I think that's kind of amazing. It is amazing. Did that amazing. give you a, a superpower? It did,
3: but then I wanted to uh, be pushed, and so I actually tried to apply to a track team in Lincoln, Nebraska, where there were some individuals that could push me. And I was denied that opportunity because they thought we would create kind of a monopoly. So that was the first instance where. A monopoly meaning. A meaning where we would just dominate too much wow. as, as a track club. So that was the first instance that I realized, oh, wow, sometimes it isn't good to be too good because then you're denied opportunities to grow and develop did that ever recur did you ever see that again as an example i didn't but it's something that i am very mindful of now Because even as an entrepreneur in the wine space, I'm having my competitors kind of look at me and question what I'm doing. And, you know, I even got a mysterious complaint turned into the alcohol bureau of control, you know? And so when you are making a name for yourself and you are driving for excellence, people don't always, you kind of ruffle feathers sometimes.
2: How do you feel about ruffling feathers? you know,
3: I do me and I, I want to be the best that I can be. And so I've just decided that I'm okay with that because it needs to be done.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So you, uh, you were an HR professional for a good long time. I was, did you enjoy that? I did. I enjoyed it. Um,
3: I focused really on recruiting. I was a generalist and an HR manager, but my specialty was recruiting. And I really liked that because it gave me the opportunity to really get to know people and their skill sets and figure out how we could leverage their skill sets for the company that I was working for to allow them to be the best, you know, them.
2: <laughs> so, right, it's a theme. Like, you get to be the best you, they get to be the best, best them, and that's, like, what you're invested in absolutely, as your, as your day job. Um, And I know that you did a lot of research in that job like there's a lot of Internet searching to find the people
3: there is absolutely so I felt like I really gained an expertise on Internet sourcing and research and data mining um, because the worldwide Web is huge. You have to figure out how to navigate it to find what you're looking for. And I was successful, you know, doing searches on LinkedIn and Boolean searches uh, to find the right
2: talent to fill open positions. So are there tricks to that? I'm a horrible researcher, which might come as a surprise to some people because it seemed like, how bad can you be? But I'm a terrible, I don't know, like I... Are there tricks to doing it well?
3: There there are a lot of tricks and um, doing it well. So it's all about creating the perfect search string. <laughs> oh, tell me more. <laughs> With the ands and the ors right. and the nots and the pluses. Um, how you type in your search string is going to determine the amount of results that you get. And um, that's for
2: people, but also for anything? For anything, yeah. Hmm. I didn't know there was a string. And so the ands and the nots are, and the ors... Essentially, help you tighten down your search so that you get the results that you're looking for. So, if, if anyone's wondering, like, why I'm asking for all the search <laughs> questions because they seem a little weird, aside from the fact that I actually do genuinely want to know, um, it turned out that this type of searching helped build her business, Absolutely. and um, and so it really there's a reason, people. There's a reason, and so. Uh, you decided to open a winery, which I've just, I know the why, but you have a why. Why did you do that?
3: My why is very complex, but very simple, I tell people. So one, I'm very passionate about wine and as an HR professional, it could be kind of stressful. And I always felt like there wasn't a winery within reach, within driving distance that I could go to after my work day. So, it came from a need. I wanted to build an urban winery that was close to the customer base. Um, but then also, as I
2: looked... Just, just to say, that is an odd need. Like, you know, <laughs> I need to have a winery near me so I can go have a drink at a winery. Because you could have gone to a bar or a restaurant but like why a winery specifically
3: so the wineries are a lot more laid back and relaxed the ambiance is different than a bar or a restaurant you get to meet the winemaker you get to hear about how the wines are made usually at a winery they're a lot more knowledgeable about the wine specifically and so you have more rich uh, conversations with the individuals that work there
2: so you're just looking to know more and you're like yeah. okay you bars you're not really doing it for me I want a winery <laughs> and I'm gonna make it Correct. <laughs> okay <laughs> so um, did you became a home winemaker was that before or after the big winery dream settled in your mind you know it was
3: actually before so um, I manage my family's budget and I was looking at you know my expenses and I'm like, oh wow, I am spending quite a bit of money on wine. I wonder if I can make wine for less than what I'm paying on the retail shelf.
2: No way. Yes. Is that really how it started? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And what else did you find in your budget? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shopping, clothes. Some other things. Okay. Yeah, some other things. <laughs>
3: but um, I I felt like it would be a fun, you know, hobby that would allow me to use my creativity and it was. So I did that for a couple years. So Where did you get your grapes? So first I started with kits. Uh-huh. So you can purchase kits just um, from local like home and garden stores or, or you can any buying better, off
2: or, the internet. Or any better than any others, or are they all kind of the same. They're
3: all kind of the same. Okay. But then once I mastered the kits I graduated from purchasing fruit, so I sourced local strawberries, peaches, apples. I couldn't get a hold of any grapes initially, because grapes are very
2: coveted. Um, Coveted, you mean, like, so only people who had been doing it a long time, they got the allocation of the actual grapes? You couldn't get grapes? No. No grapes. I could not get any local grapes. So I started with fruit. And then once that worked out, I started... So, wait, did it, was it sweet? Did you make sweet wines, like an apple wine? Or, like, what does that taste like? Like, like did you make peach wine? Is that schnapps?
3: So, my all of my wines
2: were dry, so okay. I'm a dry wine drinker, and so and I just finished to deter- them. To say, dry means not sweet, Correct. as opposed to not liquid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> just just say. Yes. So, the residual
3: sugars were very low in my wines. Um, they turned out really well. And so the next process was for me to source just juice. So grape juice, but I, I purchased Cabernet juice, Pinot Noir juice, Riesling juice from California. It came by refrigerated truck and then I fermented, those wines, and then those were the wines that I submitted to wine contests in Kansas and won awards. Okay, I love this. So how did you pick where you got your juice from? Like, was that a big research? That was a big research, but there's a lot of bulk um, juice on the market through the beverage industry website. Um, So that was just kind of looking it up and seeing what... Prices were available and quantities were available
2: and just making some selections. Okay, so did you end up making wine that was cheaper than what you would have bought on the shelves? I did, yes,
3: (laughs) I did. So I got my wines down to about 4 to $5 per bottle, which, you know, if I'm purchasing wine, it's Robert Mondavi and Charles Krug and, you
2: know, so some of those bottles get pretty expensive, um, so that was a savings. And... How did you know? That, is the fermentation the same whether you get the juice from somebody else or it was the same process? You use the same equipment.
3: I use the same equipment. Okay,
2: Correct. so and then you sent your homemade wines to contests. I did. So I first started out. What with, made you so bold? Well, I was getting good
3: feedback, so I was giving my wines away for like Christmas and people's birthdays, and people were like, Jennifer, these are good. You should just submit them because the Kansas Grape Growers Winemakers Association has an amateur wine competition. And so I sent those in and the first time I got a bronze, the second time I got a bronze and a silver, and then the third time I got uh, three silvers and a gold. So I steadily got better and improved. And I was just thrilled once I received that gold medal. So at that point, I was like, okay, I am putting together likeable. a likeable
2: business plan. I'm <laughs> winning a lot of things.
3: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> at that point is when I decided
2: I was going to do this as a career. So you did it while you were an HR professional. correct? Because yeah. I have a pet theory. It's called, I call it the shark theory, shark tooth theory. And I believe that people who want to find their next career usually should start it before they drop out of the current one, yes. right? So the sharks have rows of teeth. Yes. So you always have your second layer of teeth ready in case the first layer. It's not why the sharks have two layers of teeth, rows of teeth, but, um, but that's just, I think that's great, right? Because you can get, uh, get a lot of experience before you go take a big leap.
3: Absolutely. So I started all of this in 2014 I um, just with making the wines at home, I went back to school and got a master's in agribusiness. I completed my master's degree in 2016 in May and then had my formal business plan put in place in September. So I incorporated the business in September, but I did not walk away from my full-time job until September of 2018. So, I mean, I was employed all the way up until the end and it really was, um, Until I started bringing on outside investors is when they said, okay, Jennifer, you now need to really focus on this business.
2: So uh, many women say that to get um, investors as a woman is difficult. I imagine I'm going to double that for um, an African-American woman looking for money. So how hard was it for you to find money? It's been very difficult. In fact,
3: um, so I brought on two investors and they are the best investors because they invested in me, not my business, which gives me a lot of flexibility to change, pivot, uh, speed up, slow down. Like They are investing in my ability to run the company. Um, And so at this point, I am I'm pretty far away from my capital raise goal for one particular piece of real estate for my winery, so I may have to let that go and find something else that is more bankable because I was looking at going into a lease space where I think I need to buy a building for my winery. And why is that? For collateral. So with the banks, they rather see me purchase a space and that's good collateral versus leasing, which doesn't amount to any collateral.
2: How did you find the two
3: investors? Um, One investor is a huge proponent of entrepreneurism in Wichita. So I got introduced to him when we actually sat on a panel. So it was kind of like It was a panel of CEOs, um, new CEOs. I was one of the new ones (laughs) and then seasoned. And just as he was talking and as I was talking, you could feel the energy, like there was good energy there. Um, So I kind of let that go. But then about three, four months later, I reached out to him and we just had a sit down conversation. And shortly after that, he invested.
2: Okay, that's a pretty short time. That's great. That was very
3: short. So then after that, it took another three to four months before I brought on my next investor and I've kind of stalled out. And there has been a lot of research around the inequities of uh, funding for women and black women in particular. Um, When you look at just kind of factors of trust, and comfortableness. You know, people are comfortable with people who look like them, who have had same experience as them and are going into businesses that they're familiar with. And a lot of times I get three strikes on those.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> particularly in Wichita. I mean if particularly in, in Wichita. In Napa you'd hit like a, a different slightly different set of walls, but Um, What's the hardest question anyone's ever asked you? Like, are any of the questions hard or you think it's just gaining the trust is hard? I think it is gaining the
3: trust because Kansas is not known for being a wine producing state. I think people are like, how is Jennifer going to make this happen here? There's a lot They think you're crazy. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Yes, because when I was in San Francisco, um, my 2017 Chardonnay won best of class in the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. And so I went out to San Francisco to pour my wines at the Chronicle's public tasting. When I shared my story, everyone's like, this is brilliant. I think this is great because I'm still going to use 50% California grapes. And then 50% Kansas grapes in my wine portfolio. So people thought that was brilliant. But in Wichita, that's just kind of, it's never been done. You know, it's a new idea. And people just are having a hard time grasping that. But you have your fans. I do have my fans,
2: yes. And so you're, because you're pouring wine. I mean, I've seen events where you pour wine. Is that your process at the moment? Like, um, how are you selling the wine? So right now we can sell our
3: wines two ways. So online through our website, um, we can ship to the state of California, Kansas, and Nebraska. And then we are also in seven local liquor stores and wine retailers. So people can actually go to you know a local store in Wichita and
2: buy a bottle of wine. Okay, so let's go back to the crazy part. So, you could have actually done anything. You ha- you're an entrepreneur, you have an entrepreneur spirit, you're a track star, you're like, you just make things happen. So, you could have made, I don't know, a cheese business happen, or you could have <laughs> made a hair salon happen, or anything. Um, but, was there anything about the fact that it was so illogical? appealed to you or is it really just like you wanted that winery as a place for you to go? I really wanted
3: this winery experience because my slogan with Ginny Don Sellers is let your moment begin. And so I feel like wine is that connector that brings people together. Um, it's very relaxing and calming and so I wanted to create these experiences with people I've been hosting a monthly wine class uh, called wine occasion and it's just a blast you know 20 to 30 people show up mostly women but a few men and we talk about wine I'm teaching them different things and we just have a good time (laughs) So I I just wanted to create these moments
2: um, with people through wine And you've you've gotten to do that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, Jenny Dawn Sellers in Wichita, Kansas. Stay with us.
0: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Cotbalt Cave Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit EmmyUSA.com.
1: Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome
2: back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is a one of a kind. I'm just going to say you're one of a kind in so many ways, but one of them is that uh, Jenny McDonald is an African American female winemaker in Wichita, Kansas. And (laughs) those things are surprisingly. You know, surprising to put together. But we've listened um, to the why. Uh, one of the reasons why was to ha- be a role model for others um, in her community so that uh, she could inspire other women uh, to be CEOs and particularly any African-American um, women to be drinking, Uh, great wine in great places and following their dreams. So how did I say that? Is that how you would say it? Absolutely. It is. So
3: the diversity and inclusion aspect of what I'm doing, I think is very important. So Kansas has about 40 to 50 different wineries, but none of those wineries are led by a female African American. I'm actually the first commercial African American winemaker in the state of Kansas. So bringing up a whole generation of people um, and you know just exposing them to the winemaking process, the grape growing process, is something that
2: I am proud of and excited to do. And did you see people? who look like you in the classes that you took because you got a master's in ag um or in the restaurants that you go to or asking the questions that you're asking like what type of representation have you seen that is a very
3: good topic to bring up so in my coursework i was the only african american in my master's of agribusiness cohort so there was a group of 20 of us that went through all the same classes and then graduated um And I was the only one. And so that made me think of, you know, the wine industry, the agriculture industry is a thriving industry. There needs to be more representation. But even when I look at the global um, and national wine industry there's still just a handful of us so I was in San Francisco pouring my wines and I had one of my colleagues go around and count and she counted five five <laughs> African Americans behind the table pouring wine oh out um, of how many out of hundreds there were hundreds of wineries there that day represented
2: and why do you think it is
3: I think that um, just a lack of exposure.
2: I think, plain and simple, just a lack of exposure. Now, you got it. did you get exposure um, when you were growing up with your parents? Yes, I did. And so that was
3: something that my parents would take us to the vineyards and to the orchards and being outside walking through, you know, the orchards and the vineyards and you get to pick your own fruit or grapes. That was something that I loved. I loved that experience. Um, And that was something that my parents exposed me to. And,
2: um. Do you travel in Napa as a kid or later because your your juice comes from California? Correct. So I never had
3: the opportunity to travel to Napa as a child, but as an adult I've been there quite a bit as I've been making the, the six wines that I have on the market. And I just love it there. It's so peaceful. It's beautiful. Uh, the people are very friendly, and the wine is
2: delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you can't complain about that. And have you traveled... and? Been um, tasted the wines in France or Italy. Definitely have has that interested you, or are you basically like looking at the U.S. and thinking about your wine. So
3: right now, I have not had the opportunity to go over to Europe. I would love to someday. Um, that's definitely on my bucket list. But right now, I'm really focused on California um, because that's where all of my Well, not. Currently, all
2: my wine is coming from California. Right. To be clear, your, your goal, your dream of Kansas grapes um, hasn't come to pass yet. Correct. So we're
3: building towards that. But our first Kansas grape harvest will be in the fall. So we're really excited about that. So you've planted some grapes. I have planted um, some fruit trees, but we are working with local growers and we will be able to
2: get some grapes this fall so finally they're giving you an allocation they like, are she's yes. serious okay fine it's not home winemaking anymore yes <laughs> she can have some of our grapes correct oh boy okay so um you're married and you have a couple of kids and I'm wondering what was your husband's thought you have this great job and uh and you're like honey I'm gonna open a winery mm. and what does your husband say to that he thought I was crazy initially yeah. uh,
3: But it was one of those things that he saw how hard I was working and he saw the traction that I was making. And I've had obstacles and challenges, but I've never given up. Mm -hmm. My personal motto is have faith and never give up. And so as time went on, he became more and more supportive to the fact that he actually helped me plant our urban orchard And that was a lot of hard work.
2: So so he's he's now in it. Yes. He's Um, vested now. Like, what what, what is the hardest obstacle that you've had to overcome? Besides fundraising,
3: it's really been, um, you know, making sure I have the right staff in place. Um so And you've had some growing pains with the staff, right? I have had some growing pains with the staff. As a startup business, you're moving so quickly that um like I built my business into three phases and what I found was the skill sets that you need in one phase sometimes don't transfer over to the next phase. Um and so that was hard to have to say a good you know, goodbye to a couple loyal team members that
2: just couldn't make the leap. I think mean, particularly I as an HR professional, you must feel like I can hire people for the long term. And then it turns out you haven't been a CEO, like you have been had a startup. Correct. Like, you know, like, was that hard for you? Because your goal, I'm sure, as an HR professional is to make the right hires and hopefully have people stay yes
3: retention you know retention is so important and so it was really hard especially coming from that hr mindset and then i had to put my ceo cap back on and realize that you know the skill set just wasn't there and so we needed to make a change and
2: um okay so your your husband's on board what about your kids
3: my kids are very on board to the fact that, like, my son will ask, "Ooh, that sparkling wine! You know, I want to <laughs> try some of that." Or <laughs> my daughter's like, "Can I smell that?" And my daughter will drink her um, her grape juice out of a wine glass, you know, and swirls and and so they're seeing that. But then they also see how hard I work, so that you know they're actually working really hard in school. And they talk about some of the different roles and opportunities that they could have in my business someday. Um, So that- Okay, that's adorable. Yeah. What do they want to be? So my son Mm -hmm. has a knack for baking and just culinary arts. And so he wants to be the chef. And then my daughter um, right now wants to be the winemaker helping me make the wines and determining what, what grapes I use Uh, She had an opportunity to go to Napa with me when I was blending my um, rosé and white wine. And, you know, you have to identify the color of your wine so you can document it and put it in your fact sheets. And Emma's like, that looks like rose gold. I'm like, you're
2: right. It does look like rose gold. Good description. (laughs) Yes. We're going to use that one. I think getting the you know getting the kids involved is so great my my daughter um when I was the editor of food and wine we had wine around the house or wine at restaurants all the time and I was encouraging them you know she's now 18 still not actually legally able to drink but when she was you know 14 15 16 I'd be like here you should really try this like I want her to try wine before it's like hey I just want to get drunk yeah she never went into that phase but she would smell the wine and she'd be like nail polish i'm like no it's not I'm like <laughs> that's not a description <laughs> um okay maybe to you but yes. i don't really smell that as nail polish let's move on <laughs> so it took her it took her a while to get past like just smelling alcohol you know just yeah, straight alcohol, the alcohol to um yeah. you know to get to like the fruit correct um so one of the things that you've talked about with um being successful in in hr is the importance of vulnerability yes i'd love to hear you talk about that because it's my one of my favorite topics i think that vulnerability is important to trust which is one of the things that you you need for a sexual successful business and um you know working with others absolutely so i think
3: vulnerability is so important as you're building relationships with people just to be your authentic self And one of the things that I realized that um, a fellow entrepreneur told me that I wasn't doing well enough was speaking my why. So it wasn't until about 30, 45 days ago that I really talked about diversity and inclusion. And that was such a deep part of my why, but I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. And then I finally just said, I need to be vulnerable and share the meaning behind what I'm doing so that the right people come on board to support my mission and vision. And why why was that hard to say? Because talking about race is so uncomfortable right now. And the climate, I feel like here in the U.S., I feel like race has kind of gotten stirred up again. And, you know, there's more discriminatory, like overt Um, examples of discrimination going on today than any other time that I can remember that it does make it a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about it, but I think pointing things out to people so they can change their behavior is important.
2: And that, do you feel like you've seen a change in the way you connect with people? If you say, look, I'm doing this partly because I'm a black woman and I want to be an example. Like, do you feel like there's a better connection? They're like, oh, I get it. Yes. And you're not a crazy lady who just like fell in love with California wine and wanted to do it here?
3: Correct. Because, you know... um Wine is still an alcoholic beverage, you know, and I didn't want to be seen as, oh, Jennifer just likes wine and, you know, Jennifer just is doing this to, you know, get a buzz or, you know, it's like, no, I am doing this for a deeper meaning It's about the diversity and the inclusion and trying to educate people about fine wine. You know, there's a deeper meaning than just, you know, having a good time and And drinking wine. And
2: what would you say to people who say, like, you're never going to get a fine wine out of Kansas? I think it's possible. (laughs) I think with
3: Kansas, you have to appreciate the grapes that can be grown in our soil. Um, so it's the Norton Grapes, it's the Chamberson, the Brianna, the Traminette, um, the Vito Blanc. So they're grapes that aren't as well known and popular as the grapes that can be grown in California, but it's all about education. So Traminette can make a really nice sweet wine. Same with Brianna, so people who like Moscato may like the Brianna and Traminette. Chamberson can be made into a really nice dry wine that's similar to like a Pinot Noir. Um, Norton's a deeper, bolder, fuller wine, so that's going to be more like a Cabernet Sauvignon. So as you, you kind of have to match people's wine preferences up with what's available in Kansas so that they're drinking things that are within their palate
2: range. And what do you think that palette is? Because you just described a pretty wide palette from sweet to, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon.
3: Yeah. So I feel like... Because oh, um, you did research. Actually, I, you know.
2: <laughs> you do know. I'm, not yes. ask, I'm asking you a question you know the answer to. <laughs> this is not a guess.
3: No. So in Kansas, um, most Kansas do have a sweeter palette, but um, there are some wine connoisseurs in Wichita. So... <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who are, you know, shipping in wines from France and who are buying really high-end wines from California. Um, but as I did my research, because um, for a year I was working on a thesis and I did firsthand research on consumer wine preferences and had around 80 people taste 24 different wines and give me ratings on a aroma, appearance, body, taste, and finish. Um, so I did firsthand
2: research, and that clearly showed me that people do like sweet wine. Yeah, I mean, American America has a very sweet palate, so yeah. it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't surprise me completely to learn that. So um, you, we were talking about your two kids, and then I got distracted by something else. We, we were talking about your two kids, and um, we were talking about vulnerability, which really, before I got distracted, was a bridge to the. Um, the not for profit that you've founded in your son's name, uh, Desmond's Cure. I'd love to hear about your commitment for not for profit and why you founded um, this charity in your son's name. Absolutely. So, at
3: my core, I feel like I'm a socialpreneur. So, you know, the social causes really, um, you know, I care about. I And what happened was my son was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is a blood disorder. It's not cancer, but they treat it like cancer. So he had to have um, a bone marrow transplant, but then before that chemotherapy and radiation to kill all of his cells so that he could receive my daughter's stem cells and have that be thriving in his body. Why is it not cancer, but treated like cancer? So with cancer, With cancer, um, there um, is an component that it could be terminal. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the blood disorder, it's treatable, but sometimes not curable. Mm-hmm. So we were thankful that Desmond would never um, die from aplastic anemia. But he went to hell and back to get better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we created a foundation in his name. When we were in the hospital, we found that so many people were just giving back to us um, with, you know, buying him toys to keep him busy in the hospital because we were there for six weeks in the hospital, but then in Kansas City, near the hospital for three months after the transplant for recovery. So we were away from home for a very extended period of time. So just the love that people gave through, you know, donations, meals, we wanted to find a way to kind of give back. And honestly, I look at that as it was kind of my healing. Mm -hmm. So when you're going through a really difficult time, if you can kind of switch your focus off of yourself and on to someone else that's kind of a form of healing it really is and it was an opportunity for me to just have joy in my daily life when things were not so joyful um, and then it gave Desmond an opportunity to be an inspiration to children who were in the hospital because what we ended up doing was putting together these building hope bags full of toys and we would pass them out to other kiddos who were in
2: the hospital and he gave them to, and like he would gave go them
3: how old was he when he was diagnosed so he was initially diagnosed when he was five so it was right before he was going into kindergarten so he actually had to miss the whole first semester of his of his kindergarten year and what's it's pretty good told, year to miss.
2: It was a good year to miss, yes. I mean, if you're going to miss one. Yes. Then but I'm, f- fine, I'm sorry. So was that just great? I mean, it must have been shocking, right? It was it, shocking. And how did you discover
3: this? So uh, Desmond ended up getting these really big bruises, like on his thigh, and places that you couldn't just explain away. Um, and then he was getting these um, red dot Rashes called petechiae rashes. Um, and so we went to the doctor, and they're like, something is wrong. So they drew his labs, and all of his bloodlines were mysteriously low. So he got immediately admitted to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, he received several blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, because basically with aplastic anemia all of your blood lines are low um, which you know your white cells prevent infections and your platelets actually clot your blood so if he was to get cut severely he wouldn't have had the platelets to clot the, the wound um, and then your red blood cells... It's really scary. It is scary. You know, keep you healthy and give you energy.
2: Uh, so he was extremely fatigued all the time, just wiped out. And when he recovered from the transplant, um, did he go... Did he have more energy and, you know, did he recover so he was just like a normal kid and it's okay if he falls and scratches his arm and
3: so for a while so he went through this his kindergarten year he was monitored very closely you know first grade second grade and then third grade his counts just started going down and he started getting fatigued again and so aplastic anemia came back we treated it through different forms of treatment he was on steroids for a while he did what's a treatment called um, IVHG. Mm. Um, and none of those things worked.
2: Mm. So then they had to redo the bone marrow transplant. And what was your feeling at that time? Was that hard to work and have a sick child?
3: It was horrible. My focus was on him every moment of the day. I was not my best self. You know, you're just worried sick. Um, and then, so when my daughter first donated, she was three, so she has no memory of that and it was kind of an easy peasy process for her, but the second time around, she was a first grader, so she had anxiety, just going through that process was really hard for her, um, she was really upset right
2: before the donation, um. She must have been like, why me? Like, correct. why do I have to help yeah. him? Yeah. You know, he's my big brother and, like, Really? Yeah, I can imagine.
3: So it it was a little bit traumatic. It was more intense. Um, you know, he was a fourth grader, so he's in he's in school. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Not a better semester, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so he had to be homeschooled that entire year. I'm trying to homeschool him. I'm trying to work. I I was his nurse, you know, doing helping him with things. Um, and my husband was very helpful, but I was always the one who took off from work and stayed in Kansas City with
2: him in the hospital and and through the recovery. And so, did that change the your in your mind like your future plans? It did. It
3: really um, made me think that everyone's time on this earth can never be taken for granted. Yeah. Um, And that you want to leave this earth feeling like you gave it your all, you pursued your passions, you lived a life that you wanted to live. And as much as I enjoyed HR, I just stopped having a daily passion for it and wanted to, to try something else on my own. And going through what we went through with Desmond just allowed me to have that courage to say, I can do this.
2: And was there some... So there's courage, and the flip side of courage is fear. Um, you know, how did you overcome the fear? Or did you just feel like, really, honestly, life is short? I mean, life can be short, so I'm just going to do it and, you know, close my eyes. Because I'm very interested in how people um, make these changes that are so hard. Yes. So um, I'm a
3: Christian and I believe in prayer. So, I mean, I prayed about this for a long time. But then I also educated myself. You know, I obtained the skills, the knowledge, the experience to do this. So I felt qualified
2: to do it. um, And so I did it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's right. I mean, I think that preparation, um, I've been talking about this notion of Um, You know, a lot of people say follow your journey, which is a phrase that really bothers me um, because it makes it sound like all you need to do is, you know, see the white light and you go towards it. But in fact, the question, I think, is how you operationalize following the journey. Absolutely. Because otherwise you just end up broke or homeless or disappointed or back at square one. Correct. So in your case, it was like just the education was what you really needed in order to move this forward. It sounds like more than anything else. Yeah.
3: The education and the experience, just the hands-on experience. Right.
2: Because you also went and worked harvest in Napa.
3: So I, I wasn't able to do harvest in Napa, but I did harvest in Kansas. And then I spent a ton of time at one particular winery asking questions, helping them with their crush process. Um, you know, I, I helped them with their harvest So I got some really good hands-on experience at a a really reputable winery.
2: Okay, so you are so like confident and competent, but there must be something. Like, what's the nagging thought in your mind that you can't educate yourself out of um, that you're like, (laughs) I... It bugs me because I can't solve this one. Like, what? what's the nagging thing?
3: Well, just the economics behind, can I sell all the wine that I have projected in my Performa to keep my business afloat and pay all of our bills once we open our physical winery? Um, that's the nagging question. So, you know, you need customers. And right now I have a strong customer base, but the the quantity of wine that we need to sell is really low because we don't have the overhead of a location. When you take on the overhead of a location, I have a very high monthly revenue goal that I need to meet. So it's like, can the momentum that I have created, you know, continue to elevate to take us to the next level?
2: That seems like a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna assume the answer is yes. But I can see how that would keep you up at night because that's a it's such an unknown, right? It is an unknown. Because you have your customers, you just you you need to grow them. Correct. Um and you need to grow the word and then they need to believe in you, and then you know, hopefully you'll also bring along the mission because Absolutely. you're very very mission driven. Um, okay, well, I have one last question that I always ask my guests, which is to pay it forward to a woman um in the hospitality business, so it could be wine, it could be food, it could be uh, restaurants, anything, a mentor or someone you look up to for what they've achieved and the person hasn't gotten enough um, recognition.
3: Yeah, so in the hospitality industry um, and actually the craft beer industry, um, there is a gal, Stacy, Ward Layton. She is um, one of my mentors. She owns the Hopping Gnome Brewery, and it's a small tap room. But what she is doing to inspire other women brewers is incredible. And they have high foot traffic. Where you know they're trying to decide if they want to grow their footprint because they're running out of room in their space. Uh, they opened about three and a half years ago.
2: And, and are they in Wichita?
3: They're in Wichita.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. If people want to um, check out Jenny Dawn Sellers um, or learn more about you, where can they find you? So I am on
3: Facebook at Jenny Don Sellers. We're on Instagram and LinkedIn. And then we're also on Twitter at Jenny Don Seller the S.
2: Without Isn't that annoying? S. I know. Uh, was, and you guys know where to find me, at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. I hope you, hope you enjoyed this episode. If there's um, anyone you think that I should be interviewing, reach out and let me know. I'm always curious. And I look forward to having you listen again next week. Have a really great week.